0: So at this point, um, they are going to suffer a humiliating defeat. The question is, how humiliating is it going to be?
1: As of Monday night, Russia has not declared victory over a single Ukrainian city, defying expectations of defense analysts around the world. Germany called an increase in military spending, reversing long-standing policy. Ukraine and Russia held talks in Belarus, with no apparent breakthroughs as of this time. How will the world order as we know it change after this crisis is over? What makes this war different than every other war? How has social media pressured countries and alliances around the world to act? How might this crisis play out from this point? And what are the repercussions for Putin and Russia if their plan goes sideways? Joining us tonight, Joe Mikhailov, best-selling military history and world affairs author, to discuss the implications of what he calls a humiliation for the Russian military unfolding in Eastern Europe. We talk about the anticipated shifts in the power distribution in the world after the crisis, and how this war might turn out to be a deterring lesson for the Chinese Communist Party. This is Forbidden News, and I'm Gary By. Joe, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, we're here to talk about the, the interplay among the United States, Russia and China in the rapidly evolving Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, but as custom to our show, we'll set up the back- backdrop with the big picture here. So tell us more about how the geopolitics of the Eurasian Plain shape Russia's perception of of its security interest um, in the context of what we're dealing with here.
0: Well, the principal geopolitical feature of Eurasia is the Eurasian Plain, which is essentially a relatively flat expanse that extends from Germany almost all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Um, it's ringed by varieties of mount, variety of mountain chains along its southern periphery, from the Carpathians through the Caucasus, and then across to the Hindu Kush and the Himalayas. Uh, but other than for the Ural Mountains, which don't entirely bisect it, um, it's a relatively flat area. There are, you know, a number of major rivers which represent important uh, defense or offer defensive important defensive characteristics: the Volga, the Don, the Dnieper. Uh, the Ob, the uh, Yenisi, and the Lena. But other than for that, it's basically a flat plain. And it has been uh, an area through which Russia has been uh, repeatedly invaded by the Mongols from the east, um, by the Ottomans in the southwest, and in the west by the French, the Germans twice, the Poles, the Swedes, uh, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Um, so it's it's been essentially the, the, the vector uh, for repeated invasions of Russia. So it's understandable if the Russians are paranoid uh, about invasions from the West, because that has certainly been a recurring theme in their history. Um, the way the Russians have responded to that is to essentially formulate a national security doctrine that is based on controlling as much of the periphery as they can, both in terms of the amount of power they can project uh, over that periphery and the geographic scope uh, across which they can project that power. And the greater the periphery that Russia controls, then historically, the more secure Russia has felt. Now, the problem with that approach is that it means that the more secure Russia feels, the less secure all of its neighbors feel. Um, And that is a system that is inherently unstable. It can only be maintained by the application of Russian power. And when that power uh, dissipates, as it did after the Bolshevik Revolution, or as it did uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1989, then that that system collapses as well. Um, So that's essentially where we have been uh, since 1989. Uh, And since Putin essentially took control of the Russian government, he has been trying to recreate um, control of that periphery to give him what military analysts refer to as defense in depth, essentially a larger runway in which to um, conduct military operations in the event that Russia was again to be invaded. So that's where we are. That is the the stage, the canvas, if you will, across which um, what's happening in Ukraine um, is 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 playing out.
1: Right, and I kind of wanted to go into the unsta- unstable factor that you're you're talking about here. Um, you said in an interview before with. Um... I think it was one of the one of the speaker organizations, uh, and I quote you, dealing with an opaque future is about accepting uncertainty as a strategic choice rather than trying to overcome it. And sort of applying this to our current crisis here, it's close to a consensus right now that Putin has acting quite erratically. Um, and there have been reports of a Russian forces attacking civilians. He's raised the level of nuclear alert to special combat readiness. In your opinion, what are the different scenarios that might play out from this point in time? And how should the West strategically position themselves to respond to these scenarios?
0: Well, I think that the original Russian plan essentially is DOA. Um, I mean, the initial Russian plan was to invade with what they considered to be overwhelming force. Uh, with a strategy really out of the Soviet Cold War playbook, you know, massed armor advancing along uh, uh, four different axes while at the same time um, trying to decapitate the government by taking Kiev. And then, you know, once the government was either, uh, once the leaders were either killed or had fled, to trot out a new unity government that would immediately seek um, a... Um, a uh, Ceasefire with the Russians to protect civilians, you know, and, and, and the usual, the usual thing. Um, that's not going to happen. Um, I think it's very clear that um, even if if uh, Zelensky is killed, um, there's just no way Ukrainians are going to accept a pro-Russian government in Ukraine. So the only way a pro-Russian government can survive is if Russian troops stay on the ground, if Russian boots remain in Ukraine to essentially protect that government, which essentially sets up Russia for an extended insurgency within Ukraine. And that's not what they want. And that would go very, very badly for them. So at this point, Putin really needs to get out and he needs a face-saving solution to do that. Um, And there may not be one. Uh, I think what's clear is I don't think the Russians want Zelensky dead anymore because I think Zelensky is probably the best bet they have to come to an agreement with someone who can actually make it stick. Now, it's interesting that over the weekend, Porchenko, the former Ukrainian president, showed up in Ukraine and had himself conspicuously filmed holding an AK and saying, I'm here to, you know, to fight the Russians and defend Ukraine. So clearly he's trying to position himself as a potential successor should something happen to Zelensky. Um, but there's no one in Ukraine who has really the gravitas and the, and the popular support, not only in Ukraine, but elsewhere around the world, um, who I think who, who can actually reach an agreement with the Russians. Now, and that's what they're negotiating right now. Um, question: You know, it's not clear what the Russians want. I think the most they're going to get at this point is a Ukrainian declaration of uh, neutrality and a promise that they will not seek NATO membership for some period of time—ten years, you know, twenty years, whatever. Um, And it's possible that with that, Putin can say, I've accomplished what I set out to accomplish. I've neutralized NATO in expansion in the Ukraine, which was never really an option anyway. Um, And, uh, you know, I've I've accomplished my mission and leave. Now, that will still be an enormously humiliating defeat for the Russians. There's no question about that. So at this point, um, they are going to suffer a humiliating defeat. The question is how humiliating is it going to be? Um, From the Ukrainian side, there has been such an outpouring of support for Ukraine all over the world that the pressure on NATO to let Ukraine in is enormous and will continue to increase. Um, So from, 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 uh, from Ukraine's point of view, from Zelensky's point of view, if ever there was a chance to join NATO and by extension the EU, this is the chance. So for them to give that up um, would, I think, probably be a big mistake on their part. But that may be the only way they can end this and give the the Russians a way out. Now, if they can't come to an agreement, um, Putin's choice really is simply to escalate, to do to Ukraine what he did, say, to uh, Chechnya and actually begin... Um, you know, bombarding the cities and and, and really escalating the level of violence they bring into, they bring to play. Um, That's a very dangerous strategy because this is a war unlike any other, because it is a war that is being fought in a way across social media with real-time updates of what is happening that literally go viral instantaneously. And, if they increase the level of violence and you start seeing thousands, if not tens of thousands of civilian casualties, the pressure on the West, on NATO and the United States to do something um, is going to be enormous. And this is being driven by public opinion that really you know, has appeared spontaneously and which no one can really control. And at that point, the only logical thing to do would be to declare a no-fly zone over Ukraine, which is what the Ukrainians want. But that means you are now talking about uh, NATO planes flying over over Ukraine and, in effect, telling Russian fighters and and bombers, turn back or we will shoot you down. That's a very, very dangerous strategy. Um, It's not one that I think is really in the interest of the West to pursue, uh, but they may be driven to doing that, um, and that would raise the stakes for Putin uh, uh, quite considerably.
1: Right, and regardless of how this turns out, uh, the current world order, as we know, is likely going to change, uh, the extent of which we don't know yet. So what are your reflections on this, and what do you think is the repercussion for Putin and for Russia uh, once this is over?
0: Well, first and foremost, NATO is going to come out of this considerably strengthened um, with a very clear consensus um, about how they move forward. I mean, what has happened over the weekend with Germany announcing that they're going to provide armaments to Ukraine and that they're actually going to defeat or they're going to increase um, defense spending is extraordinary. At the height of the Cold War, the Germans had 15 fully staffed brigades, roughly about a half a million men. Two years ago, the German, uh, the German government admitted that they could not field a single brigade at full strength. Effectively, the German army did not exist as an operational force, which meant that effectively Germany, the richest country in Europe, was depending on the Polish army to defend them from the Russians, which has a certain amount of historical irony in it. Um, now they've said they're going to increase defense spending to the tune of 100 million euros, uh, take it above the 2% that the last three American administrations have been pushing for them to do. Um, that's an extraordinary um, development. And that's not going to change regardless of what happens to Ukraine. I mean, even if they reach an agreement um, in the talks that they're, they're, they're doing on the, on the uh, Belarus border and the Russians withdraw, you know, it's, it, it's, it's highly unlikely the Germans are going to say, OK, well, in that case, we're going to, you know, uh, change our plan. So, first of all, uh, NATO is going to come out of this extraordinarily uh, strengthened over what it was before, number one. Uh, number two, it is a humiliation for Russia. I mean, the, 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 you know, the mighty Russian army that was considered one of the most formidable armies in the world um, basically got its butt kicked big time. Uh, by an army that everyone expected, including Western defense analysts, would basically collapse within 24 hours, and the the visual imagery, you know, of of grandmothers, you know, picking up their Kalashnikovs and basically saying, "I'm going to defend uh, my city um, against the Russians," is just it, it's just an incredibly powerfully uh, powerful visual image um, that is going to remain. Um, and, uh, so I, 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 think the, the willingness, um, of, uh, of Russia to deploy its army, uh, in these kinds of situations is certainly going to diminish. And if you are one of those countries that is kind of being, you know, neutralized or has a pro-Russian government, you know, Kazakhstan, Moldova, Belarus, uh, the other stands in Central Asia, uh, to a certain extent, Georgia, um, you're going to be thinking long and hard about, you know, what's the likelihood that Putin will survive? What's the likelihood that I want to tie, you know, my country's future to Russia and to Putin, given everything that is going to happen? Um, I think that this outpouring of public support and and public awareness of what is happening in uh, in uh, um, Ukraine is extraordinary. It's something that has never happened before, and I think, and it happened spontaneously. I mean, it wasn't organized by anybody. Um, and I think the fact that it happened um, means that, that in, in in the if such events happen again in the future, um, for example, in the event that say China invades Taiwan, um, I think it will happen again. So I think those are pretty significant implications. I think the larger question is, if you're Beijing, you know, what lessons do you draw from this? And I would say, first of all, um, you attack with overwhelming force, which in retrospect, the Russians did not do. Um, It's generally accepted among military analysts that in the the event of a ground invasion, the first thing you want to do is essentially take out command and control, take out air defense, Um, and shut down communications to give yourself air superiority and to essentially blind your opponent. Um, uh, That's, you know, Soviet doctrine, it's NATO doctrine. Um, That clearly didn't happen. I mean, the the Russians do not have air superiority. Communications are still working uh, reasonably well. Um, And command and control functions are still continuing. So that would be the first lesson. Uh, The second lesson is that You need to control communications and you need a credible counter narrative. Um, In this case, the Russians did not control communications. There's lots of, of, of information coming out of Ukraine. And the Russian counter narrative was frankly ludicrous. I mean, the idea that Ukraine was getting ready to invade Russia. Or that the Ukrainian government was dominated by Nazis. Um, I mean, that has no credibility anywhere in the world. I don't think it even has credibility on on Russian media. Um, so uh, those are going to be. And I think more importantly, um, you know, it used to be that when you had a coup. You know, you took you took over the telephone exchange, you took over the radio station and the and the television station and you announced, you know, we've had a coup. We're now in charge Um, as as communication uh, has become more as the sources or the ability to communicate has become more diversified. It's harder to shut down communications. So in Ukraine, anybody with a cell phone is a news camera. Um, you can upload real time uh, events onto the Internet and across social media um, instantaneously. And um, that's going to be a hard thing to counter. It's going to be hard. It, it was, the, the Russians didn't counter it in, uh, in Ukraine. And, and I think it would be hard to do in Taiwan as well. Um, I think the third thing is this explosion of public opinion that has really stiffened Western resolve. Um, I mean, what's happened over the weekend um, with the expansion of the sanctions, Germany agreeing to supply armaments, Germany committing to rebuilding its military. I mean, this wasn't because German leaders or European and American uh, political class suddenly changed their mind. It was because in the face of overwhelming public opinion, they really had no choice. Um, So this is a factor that's going to play In other similar situations. And this is highly unpredictable. Um, You just don't know how how this is going to happen. And then the last thing, which I think would give Beijing serious concern, is you've seen now a move in the United States to boycott Russian goods. Well, you know, that's largely symbolic. So you can stop drinking Russian vodka, but, you know, the United States imports $1.4 billion worth of vodka, 18 million of that is from Russia. So, you know, what happens to the Russian vodka export um, isn't going to move the Russian economy's uh, needle in any, in any meaningful way. But if you're China and you assess the fact, the risk, that an invasion of Taiwan could lead to a worldwide boycott of Chinese-made goods, that's a serious concern. And that is something that is, in some ways, much more of a threat to Beijing than any sort of military response on the part of the United States and uh, and its allies in uh, in East Asia, so I think all of these things have um, you know are going to change um, the international environment. Um, and some things are still playing out, so it's it's not clear how far it's going to go. Um, but certainly we've opened up a Pandora's box.
1: And how do you gauge China's response to to the war so far? Um... I mean it's it's its narrative has been shifting a little bit and it's been touching on both sides it seems like and it's right now it's leaning closer to to Moscow's side yeah so how do you uh, what do you make of this
0: uh... well, actually I think it's leaning away from Moscow right now I mean initially uh, initially you know the Beijing's position was that the Russians had legitimate concerns um, that the eastward expansion of NATO um, uh, uh, Wasn't justified, and uh, they all but you know essentially endorsed the uh, the, the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Really, over the course of the last I would say four days, five days, um, they've been backpedaling furiously. Um, they're now openly calling for for a negotiated settlement, some sort of diplomatic solution. Um, they have stopped short of offering to host a diplomatic solution, but I think at this point. Um, they don't really want to get any more involved than they already are, um, but without question, they're they're backpedaling uh, in part because I think they're surprised by how things have turned out, um, and they're seeing um, already calls to essentially strengthen the U.S.-Taiwanese relationship, um, um, and they don't want to see a repeat of sort of of uh, of what's happening in terms of, um, of, of strengthening NATO essentially occur in East Asia, and uh, at this point they don't want to get tarred, you know, by the by the by the same brush that uh, Putin is getting tarred with. And there's already talk, you know, in Europe and the United States about, you know, the need to move away from Chinese-centered supply chains, to move away from dependency on um, on on critical elements that come from China. Um, and the fact that if China uh, helps Russia to circumvent the sanctions, that maybe then China should also be sh- sanctioned. So at this point, there's really no upside for China. Um, so they want to get as far away from this as they possibly can.
1: Right. And um, I kind of want to get into that a little bit with China distancing itself from uh, from Russia. So you wrote in an article before on Military.com that um, uh, it poses the question, is Putin going to play the China card? And we've seen on the eve of the Winter Olympics that with a joint statement between Russia and China, there seems like an alliance of many fronts. And about less, a short of three weeks later, uh, Putin invaded Ukraine. So is this, in your opinion, uh, Putin playing the China card? And what do you think... Absolutely. Right, right. And what yeah, do you absolutely. think of, of Beijing's... Go ahead, um... sorry. Sorry, sorry, go ahead.
0: Well, I mean, he, he's played the China card. I mean, before he invaded, he went to Beijing. He had a you know very visible uh, summit with Xi. Um, they issued a statement that basically said, you know, there's nothing that we're not willing to cooperate on and, and work together on. Um, he obviously obtained from Xi some backstops um, for the Chinese to take Russian energy um, in the event that uh, its exports to Europe are curtailed in some way. Um, there were probably um, other agreements for the Chinese to supply, you know, technology, semiconductors, what have you, in case those get restricted. I mean, there's there, there was no question there were other deals done, which were designed to backstop Russia's position. I don't think the Russians expected the scale of um, of sanctions that they are now getting. Um, but yes, I mean, there's no question. You know, at one level, there's a tremendous complementarity between the Russian and the Chinese economy. I mean, Russia is primarily an exporter of raw materials, China and an importer of technology and capital. Uh, China is primarily an importer of raw material, an exporter of consumer goods and technology, and to some extent, capital as well. So there's a very good fit between the two economies. Um, so there's certainly a basis for Russian-Chinese cooperation. That doesn't necessarily need to extend to the level of military cooperation, which is what's happening and has been happening for the last two years. Um, But there's certainly a basis for China and and Russia to work together. Um, I think, you know, what is at the core of uh, effectively a de facto Russian uh, Chinese alliance, although they will not call it that, and it will never uh, reach the state of being, a formal agreement, um, is the fact that both Russia and China have ambitions that at the moment are being thwarted by American power. And so they have a vested interest in reducing American power. Um, I'm sure that one of the objectives and one of the expectations that the Russians had in the invasion of Ukraine was that it would split NATO and that NATO would emerge from this much, much weaker. Um, you know, really lacking a consensus on how to deal with Russia and how to move forward. Uh, instead, the, the absolute opposite happened. Um, you know, NATO is going to emerge from this much stronger. Germany, which was effectively a pacifist state that had demobilized its army for all practical purposes, is now in the process or will be in the process of rearming and reestablishing its military. Um, so from, from from the Kremlin standpoint they got the absolutely worst possible outcome with respect to NATO than uh, than they had expected um, so it's um, it's you know it hasn't gone anywhere uh, it hasn't developed and hasn't progressed anywhere like what they thought it was going to do so the 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 question really now for China is um one, to what extent are they going to get tarred uh, by, the Russian, you know, by, by the Russian brush, so to speak? Um, and two, to what extent um, are the repercussions of what happened in Ukraine going to affect Taiwan's position in the world, the willingness of other countries to support Taiwan, the willingness of other countries to supply Taiwan with more advanced weaponry, and how do they factor into their calculations these new two developments, you know, the, this enormous outpouring of public opinion, which um, has really constrained political leaders in, in Europe and, uh, and the U.S. You know, on Friday, um, when Biden was announcing the um, the sanctions, I was watching it on television and they were running the um the um, the Dow Jones average underneath and it was down like six or seven hundred points and as Biden spoke um, you know it could turned around and you know began to erase all of those losses and actually finished up in the green and you know I, as I was watching this I thought you know as an investor you know I'm glad to see that happen because you know the value of my, of my IRA is didn't go down um, But as a historian, it was appalling because what was really happening is that financial markets were saying, hey, it's business as usual. Um, The sanctions are going to be all for show. They're going to be relatively toothless, and they're not going to really affect Russia in any meaningful way. Um, And of course, over the weekend, that changed dramatically. And what and the reason why that changed was this enormous outpouring of public opinion. I mean, you've had literally millions of people hitting the streets to protest what's happening in Ukraine. And, you know, and I have to say, you've had thousands of people doing the same in Russia, in Moscow and St. Petersburg. And, you know, it's one thing to protest in London or Paris or or, or New York, but when you do that, when you're protesting against Russia's actions in St. Petersburg or Moscow, I mean, you are taking an enormous personal risk. So, you know, my hats off to those people who are willing to do that. Um, knowing that if the, you know they could be arrested or or, or worse um, so I think these they, I think this changes um, you know from China's standpoint it changes very much um, the calculations um, with respect to Taiwan because China could not afford a worldwide consumer boycott of made in China goods
1: yeah thank you so much for for your time today Joe
0: oh, you're welcome thank you